Good morning again. He is worthy. We have sang about His worth. He's worthy of all praise and all glory and honor. He's worthy of your trust. He's worthy to be proclaimed. And that is what we seek to do now as we open up the Word of God together to proclaim the glory of the Son, Jesus Christ, the one who came, became a man so that he could suffer and die in the place of sinners. As he gathers a people to himself, are you amongst them? That's what matters. Are you of God's people? He is worthy of your life. He's returning. He's coming back for his own. Are you ready? He wants to receive you to himself. Bring you into his kingdom of beauty and glory. But before we get there, there's something very important that has to take place. We have to be changed. And so we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 to hear about this change that must take place. We're continuing on in the epistle of 1 Corinthians. We've been here for a couple years, I think. And we'll continue on for two more chapters. I've enjoyed three months now off as um, on a sabbatical that I was very blessed to receive. And you have been blessed as well to have um, Pat and Francis preaching from the book of Titus, which they did uh, over that matter of uh, ten weeks. And that was beautiful. It was wonderful. I'm so thankful that we have uh, men who are able to preach Christ as they did for us. So now as we uh, open up 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and begin now on, a, on this topic of the resurrection of Christ, let's read together the first 11 verses and then we'll get an overview of where we're at in, in what he is seeking uh, to convey to them. Beginning in chapter 15, verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. And after that he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I'm the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are the recipients of this preaching down through the ages. This preaching has been received over 
and over again. It has been proclaimed over and over again, this preaching of a risen Christ. And now we stand centuries, millennia later, still holding fast to the truth of Christ risen from the dead. O Lord, would You instruct us again in these glorious truths and draw us not to a doctrine, but to a Savior, a person who came, the Son of God who loves sinners, died in their place, bore their sin, and rose again. And He is returning. Draw us to this One, this glorious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, there's one thing that separates Christianity from all other religions. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There was a French diplomat. He had a long name. Charles Maurice de Talleyrand Pergore. Well, a man came to him. This man was trying to start a new religion. And he came to Talleyrand for advice, complaining that he didn't seem to be able to make any new converts to his religion. What would you suggest that I do, he asked the diplomat. Talleyrand's response was, I should recommend that you get yourself crucified and then die, but be sure to rise again on the third day. If you remove the literal, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, from Christianity, it is reduced to merely one religion among many. Paul couldn't state it any more clear than he did in verse 14 of this chapter when he said, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, and your faith also is vain. Far worse, though, if Christ has not been raised, verse 17, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. Paul couldn't have chosen any stronger language to convey the importance of Christ's resurrection. It's the foundational truth of the gospel, which is the title of my sermon this morning. Christ's Resurrection, the foundational truth of the gospel. The importance of the resurrection to Christianity, it cannot be overstated. It has been referred to as the the pivot on which all Christianity turns and without which none of the other truths of Christianity would matter. The resurrection was essentially the focal point of every other truth that Christ taught. On several occasions in the Gospels, Jesus spoke of not just His death, but also His resurrection. In John chapter 2, after Jesus drove out all the merchants and the money changers from the temple, Jesus was asked for a sign that would basically prove His authority for doing what He just did. And Jesus answered them, He says, destroy this temple, and in three days it will rise up. I will raise it up, he says. And he was referencing there his own resurrection, which at this point in time wouldn't occur for another three years. And who can forget the Lord's words to Martha 
after the death of her brother Lazarus in John chapter 11, when Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me will live even if he dies. We shouldn't be surprised that the first two sermons that were preached after the resurrection and exaltation of Christ in Acts chapters 2 and 3, they both focused on the resurrection of Christ. What other explanation could there be for the transformation of a, of a group of heartbroken followers of a crucified rabbi and they were transformed into a courageous band of witnesses who boldly went forth proclaiming the gospel message that in a matter of a few years would spread throughout the Roman Empire and beyond. Ridicule, beatings, imprisonment, torture, not even death stopped them from proclaiming the truth of Christ's resurrection from the dead and the hope of salvation in Him. And their message, it was simple. It was summarized in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So not only is the resurrection essential to Christianity, but belief in Christ's resurrection is essential to your salvation. You cannot be a Christian without believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So given Paul's straightforward statement of the gospel in these first 11 verses, with his his clear emphasis on Jesus' resurrection on the third day, confirmed by all those who saw Him alive, you would, you would think that Paul was about to correct their disbelief in this essential truth. And this certainly would have not been surprising given all the other issues that we've looked at in the 14 other chapters of Corinthians that we've walked through, all the different problems he's had to address. Certainly they would need correction on this essential doctrine. However, the Corinthians did believe that Christ rose from the dead. That was not the issue. The Corinthians even, they believed also in life after death. That was not the problem. The problem was that there was no room in their thinking for their own bodily resurrection from the dead. So Paul here, he's not trying to convince them that Christ rose from the dead, but that one day they also would be raised with Christ to eternal life in new physical bodies. It doesn't appear that their disbelief in the resurrection of the dead, that it was rooted in some deliberate doctrinal rebellion, but in just honest confusion. Paul doesn't allude to the reason for their misunderstanding, but, but given what we know about Corinth, we can make, a, I think, a pretty educated guess as to why they doubted a bodily resurrection of the dead. Now, remember where Corinth was, right? First of all, we know it was a Roman city, but it was also a Greek city. It had been one of the wealthiest cities in the ancient Greek world because of its prime location right in the middle of Greece. And so Corinth 
was steeped in a Greek worldview. Just to see what the general view of, of resurrection was amongst the Greek philosophers of Paul's day, let's turn to an account of Paul's visit to another Greek city, not too far away from Corinth, Athens. Look with me, please, to turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. In Athens, there were three primary schools of philosophy at this time. And we're told of Paul engaging representatives from two of these schools of thought. The Epicureans and the Stoics. The third one was the Cynics. At the heart of, of an Epicurean worldview was the teaching that pleasure and the avoidance of pain are the chief end of man. Right? You're to live for pleasure and you're to try to avoid all pain. They were materialists. They believed that if God existed at all, well, they were, he, he was so far removed that contact with mere mortals was, was beneath him. They believed that a death, that death was when the body and the soul disintegrated. They were annihilists. After death, man just simply ceased to exist. So there was no afterlife in the Epicurean worldview. So how does such a view of death affect how you live your life? Well, their approach to life was if it feels good, do it. If it doesn't feel good, stay away from it. Avoid what hurts. You know anybody whose life is the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain? Maybe that was once your life. Maybe that is your life right now. That defines you. Right? You only get one go around in life, make it count. You seem to have a very Epicurean society today. Those in the upper class were most attracted to Epicureanism. They saw life as the pursuit after the maximum good. Now, Stoics, the other group, on the, they were a little different. They believed life is filled with both good and bad. And you have to learn to accept both. Since they could control neither the good nor the bad, their, their greatest virtue was to control themselves and how they reacted to the good and the bad that they couldn't control. The goal was to take whatever came their way with, with strength. Dignity. That's why we call someone who shows little emotion a stoic. They were more resigned to fatalism, submission, enduring pain, right? Do you know them? You know any stoics in your life? They acknowledge that God exists, but He isn't someone that they rely on or that they turn to. If bad things come their way, well, they just need to be strong. They need to get through it. Now, if you. Read what Paul says here, starting in around verse 16. I think I was going to read some of this first. No. All right. Let's start here. Looking at verse 16. I meant to read this before I gave all that, but let's just catch up now. Now, while Paul was... This is Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked 
within him as he was observing the city full of idols. And so he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. And some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him into the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming for you are bringing some strange things to our ears so we want to know what these things mean. Okay, so if from there... We start reading on down from verse 22. Excuse me. We see what Paul is saying. He's telling them. He's telling them about a God who is revealed in creation. Who created them and he created them to know him. Right. He's not he's not off. He's not distant. He's not far and removed. He he created you to know him. And then he says, and he's commanded all everywhere to repent. Why? Verse 31. Because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men. Right. How do we know this is the man through whom God is going to judge the world? The proof he gives, he raised him from the dead. And then at that point, it appears that they they simply cut Paul off. Verse 32. All right, we've we've heard enough. We've heard enough. When they heard the resurrection of the dead, they began to sneer. Oh, brother. Now, we'll we'll hear you another time concerning this. Some interest was piqued. But for the most part, they dismissed it. Now, jumping back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. With that understanding of what was a prominent view of death and resurrection with a Greek worldview, which means it very likely had seeped into the minds of the Corinthians and many of those Corinthians had been then saved and now they're struggling with the idea of a resurrection and what what purpose could there be for a resurrection? Paul's question in verse 35, it really shows the heart, I think, of their confusion. Chapter 15 of Corinthians, verse 35, he says, But someone will say, how are the dead raised and with what kind of body do they come? See, there was simply no understanding, no place in Greek thought as to how an earthly body, which is physical, perishable, how can that body be made suitable for a life in a heavenly realm that's spiritual and imperishable. Earthly bodies and heavenly existence are, are incompatible. They're as different as apples are from oranges. So given the difference between life on earth and life in heaven, they simply couldn't understand how the resurrection of the dead makes any sense. So whatever references Paul may or may not have made about the resurrection of the dead in his time when he had come and preached to them originally, they hadn't grasped it. It had gone right by them. They had no place for it. So Paul, therefore, he takes 
this opportunity now to make the case for the resurrection of the dead. And and what a case it is. Look at chapter 15. Probably covers more than one page. 58 verses. This could have been a book of the Bible all by itself. 58 verses. And in these 58 verses, Paul has basically two arguments. First, he makes the case for the reality of the resurrection. And he does that in the first 34 verses. And then he follows that with an explanation, really answering now their, their real chief question is, is how the resurrection is possible. And that 35 to the end of the chapter. But as I work through this chapter, here's how I've broken it down. So just listen to this. You don't have to capture it all right now. Just listen to this so you kind of get a la- an overview of the landscape. Here's where we're headed in this chapter over the next several weeks. First, we look at Christ's resurrection, which is the foundational truth of the gospel. That's the first 11 verses. Then Paul gets to the bodily resurrection, the corresponding truth of Christ's resurrection. That goes down to verse 23. Then he looks at the certain triumph of God's kingdom, verses 24 to 28. The serious trouble as Christians that we can endure. Why? Because there is a resurrection of the dead, right? That's verses 29 to 34. And then, as he looks at to answering the question of how does this resurrection take place, we look at the spiritual transformation our bodies will undergo in verses 35 to 49. And then the necessary translation that fits us for heaven, verses 50 to 56. And he ends with the great thanks that we owe to God in verse 57. Now, you may be thinking, yeah, I believe in the resurrection. I got no problem with the resurrection. I'm not a Stoic or an Epicurean or anything like that. That's, that's not just good, that's essential, that you believe in the resurrection. Paul tells us in verse 2 that this is a truth by which you are saved. It's a truth that you must hold fast to. The resurrection is and always has been the foundation of all preaching about Jesus Christ. Without the resurrection of Christ, the gospel dwindles into just like this inspiring story of a wise teacher who suffered heroically as a, a victim of hatred and betrayal. That's all the gospel turns into if you remove the resurrection. Now, you may think, well, that sounds like a pretty good message. I could be inspired by that. Yes, but you can't be saved by that message. And this is why he also warns about the possibility that this truth of the resurrection of Christ can be believed in vain. Right? Look at what he says there. Verse 2. Hold fast to the word I preached to you. And the word here is about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. He says, hold fast to this unless you believed in vain. See, when it comes to the resurrection of Christ, the corresponding truth of our own bodily resurrection, do you receive it with faith? Or do you just simply give it mental assent? In other words, do you take it? Do you apply it? To your life, do you simply, or do you simply agree with it and say, "Well, that's good." See, Paul ends this chapter, verse fifty-eight, with a way for us to know, really, to measure 
whether or not we are holding fast to this truth or whether we're believing in vain. Look at verse 58, the very last verse of chapter 15. Therefore, my beloved brethren, in light of all that I have spoken to you, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. What words? You're to be steadfast. You're to be immovable. You're to be working every now and then. No, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Because you know your toil is not in vain in the Lord. See, because Christ rose from the dead, and so will you, and He's triumphed over all His enemies, including death, your life should be characterized by these truths. You should be steadfast, abounding always in your work for Christ. You're like an athlete who's driven to win. You leave everything on the field. Are you doing that? Or is Christianity just what you are because you were born in America, raised in a Christian home? You think Christianity of all the religions in the world is the one that you most align with, and so that's what you are. If that's how you view things, you've believed in vain. How do you know you're not abounding in the work of the Lord? You're not steadfast and immovable. You're tossed here and there by every wind of doctrine. Blown about. Some fad blows through the church. You think it's great. Instead of looking at Christ and how to live and walk with Him and be abounding and work for Him. You're distracted by all things around you. you're not abounding in the work of the Lord, what's hindering you? Are you living by conviction or by convenience? See, by His death, our debt was paid in full. His resurrection proves this. He's worthy of our all. But the hope of resurrection makes all the efforts, all the sacrifices in the Lord's work worth it. Your work done in His name is never wasted in light of an eternal glory and a reward that awaits you. So pray that God will grip you with these truths as we study them. Now, in the time that we have left, let's let's look back again at our text, the first 11 verses of chapter 15. Paul begins by reminding them what he's what has been preached to them from the beginning about Christ being raised from the dead. And once again, his point is not to argue that Christ's resurrection was real. It's to remind the Corinthians that the word that he preached to them is the consensus of the preaching of all the apostles. It's the testimony of the witness of all who saw Christ alive from the dead. And so Paul chooses to begin here because it's, on a, it's, it's a matter from which there should be total agreement amongst the Corinthians. Christ 
was indeed raised from the dead. And then, then having established that as the foundational belief of the gospel and Christianity that they have adhered to, he then will argue the necessary consequence of Christ's bodily resurrection and how it leads to the bodily resurrection of believers. So he starts from what he knows they already believe to be true about Christ's resurrection to understand that all Christians then who have died will be raised along with Christ from the dead. The victory over sin and of death, right? It's only temporary. The last enemy of death will be fully and finally defeated. You know, when I, when I visit a cemetery and I look out over all the graves that are there of all the people who each marker represents a life lived and died. It's over. Their earthly life is done. I'm always reminded soberly, right? About the brevity of life. How quickly my own life is passing. I'm probably over halfway to the grave at this point in my life at 53 years old. I doubt I'll live to 106. See, apart from the Lord's return, as those people are in the grave, I one day soon will be, and so will you. Our lives, they are just exactly what the Bible describes them to be in James 4.14. A vapor that appears today in the morning hours and then dissipates by noon. See, the brevity of life is something that we must all live in light of. But my friends, Christ's resurrection ensures the brevity of death. Christ's resurrection is a foundational truth of the gospel. And he preached this truth to them. And they believed this truth about Christ. And so upon this, this commonly accepted truth, Paul begins his argument for the believer's resurrection. And so in the first 11 verses, Paul makes five assertions about Christ's resur resurrection to which there should be no disagreement. And here they are. All Christians believe Christ rose from the dead. The Scripture foretold Christ would rise from the dead. Eyewitnesses confirmed Christ rose from the dead. Paul's life was radically transformed by Christ risen from the dead. And the message of Christianity proclaims Christ rose from the dead. So, let's just look at this first assertion this morning that all Christians believe Christ rose from the dead. He says in verse 1, he says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So the first thing that Paul does is he reminds the Corinthians that the gospel that he preached to them when he first came to them was a gospel of a resurrected Christ. And this gospel was not just what he preached, Alone, him alone, Paul, no. It was the gospel all the apostles preached. It was the focus of all their preaching. And the reason that all Christians believe that Christ rose from the dead is because the apostles preached the gospel of a resurrected Christ. They heard this gospel preached by Paul. The Corinthians did. They believed it. 
and they were saved by it. And this was true of the Corinthians. It's true of every true believer in Christ. To become a Christian, you must first of all hear the gospel of the resurrected Christ. You can't become a Christian unless you first hear the gospel of the resurrected Christ. If you are a Christian, this is the gospel that was preached to you that you have heard and you have believed also. There is no other gospel by which you can be saved. And as we see in the New Testament, there was no other gospel that was preached by the apostles. He makes reference to the preaching to preaching three times just in these 11 verses. Verse 1, the gospel which I preached to you. Verse 2, the word I preached to you. Verse 11, he refers to all the preaching here, not just his own. He says, he says so we, all the apostles, we preach and so you believe. So this is not just... The gospel Paul preached, it's the gospel all the apostles preached. This was what the apostles of Christ did. They preached the gospel of a risen Savior. A Savior alive from the dead. The focus of their preaching was on a Savior who rose from the dead. He refers to what he preached to in verse 3. He says, I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. See, Paul heard this message from the risen Christ himself. He received it. What was it? That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So how could the apostles not preach? Think about it. How could they not preach about Christ's resurrection after what they had experienced? They'd followed Him for three years. They'd heard Him speak on several occasions over these three years of His imminent death and resurrection And then they were fully aware of his bloody death by crucifixion, his subsequent burial in the tomb. He'd been dead going on three days. There'd been reports amongst some of them that they had seen Jesus alive, but not not all of them. This wasn't true for all of them, just some. Two disciples suddenly show up in the upper room where they're all waiting They're all together. Two disciples say, we encountered the risen Jesus on the road to Emmaus. So while they're still contemplating that thought, there's still uncertainty, there's still confusion with many of them. And then comes the scene that unfolds in Luke chapter 24. Turn there. Luke chapter 24. Beginning in verse 36, he says, While they, the the disciples who were on the road to Emmaus that encountered the risen Jesus, while they were still telling them these things, he, Jesus himself, himself stood in their midst. It'd be like you guys talking with me and all of a sudden there's Jesus right there standing next to the stage. He wasn't there before, and now He is. And He says, Peace be to you. So naturally, it says they were startled and frightened. They thought they were seeing a spirit. So suddenly, Jesus is right there in their midst. He was right there. He was amongst them as if He had never died. They're startled. They're frightened. Their first thought was that they're looking at a ghost. 
Then verse 38, He said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands, my feet. It's I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have, look at that, flesh and bones as you see that I have. The resurrected body has flesh and bones. So what is Jesus wanting them to understand here? I am here before you in a resurrected body. I'm not here. I'm not some wispy, transparent, ethereal image like that of a spirit. I've got skin. I've got bones. I've got everything else. I've got muscles. I've got organs. I've got hair. I've got fingernails. I've got bones just like a body. Just like the body he had before he died. Verse 40 And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement. See, they were so overjoyed. But at the same time, they were still in confusion and disbelief that Jesus was actually alive. It it was just simply too good to be true. It was one of those moments where you're, you're trying to catch up with what's before you. Your thinking hasn't fully processed what you're seeing. This is just too good to be true. And so he said to them, got anything to eat? I don't think Jesus was especially hungry. But he wanted them to see something and understand something about himself and this resurrected body. Have you got something to eat? It's not just that Jesus was amongst them, but Jesus was amongst them in a real body. A body that can even delight in food. That's encouraging. I love food. It has a bad effect on my body. Especially at 53. But oh, in heaven. I'm trusting that in heaven we're not going to get fat. Amen. We're going to enjoy some of the best food. It's just a part of the delight that God has in store for us. So he says to them, have you got anything to eat? So they give him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and he ate it before them. They're all just standing around with jaws open. Maybe tears coming down their face as he's just munching on this piece of broiled fish. He's proving to them that he is with them right then and there, as He had been all those previous three years, I'm with you again. In all that time, it had never crossed their minds to doubt, right, that He had a body. Just like they had a body, right? The Son of God has a body just like them. I doubt they had any doubts that He was really human. God had come in the flesh. And now, they're standing before Him again. Alive from the dead. And he wants them to understand the same thing. I've got a body. They didn't doubt it before. Why would they doubt it? His body had functioned just like their own. They'd been with him three years. They'd seen him go through all kinds of things, do all kinds of things in his body. 
proving to them by eating in front of them that now he's got a body again. Only it's different. He appeared suddenly in that room. So there's some differences, but he doesn't go into that right now. What he wants them to understand most of all is that he's with them again and he's with them in a body. And they can all see this right now with their own eyes. They can touch it. They don't touch it and their hands go through. It stops at the flesh. They can feel the bones in his fingers. And they can see the scars in his hands. Verse 44 says, Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. Right? Back before I was crucified and died. When I was with you then, these are the words I spoke to you. That all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And what was it in the Scriptures that he caused them to fully and finally understand? Look at verse 46. He said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. See, his death and his resurrection three days later, they were all a part of of the good news. From the very beginning, Jesus had told them over and over that this was going to happen. And upon the basis of His death and His resurrection, look at verse 47, He says, Repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in His name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. See, they, they, had not simply, uh, they were not simply to proclaim repentance. They were not simply just to proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. No, their preaching was to proclaim that a full pardon for all sins was possible precisely because Jesus had died and God had raised Him from the dead. Death had no hold on Him. The wages of sin is death, but death had no hold on Jesus. And that is exactly what they proclaimed. And they proclaimed it from the very beginning of the church. Right? If we mark the day of Pentecost as the beginning of the church, then it's important what they preached on that day, isn't it? You remember this day? Massive crowds of Jews had filled Jerusalem. They'd come from all different parts of the Roman Empire to come back to Jerusalem for this feast of, on Pentecost. And while they were gathered in there, they heard the sound of, a, of what was like a rushing wind. And, and then they came across these men who were spontaneously speaking the various languages of all these different countries where the Jews had come from. Some of them tried to dismiss that what they were seeing was just because it was, they were drunk. And so in Acts chapter 2, if you'd like to turn there. Peter steps up. Oh no. This is not sweet wine and its effects that you are seeing. Acts chapter 2, he says in verse 14, But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea, and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give heed to my words, for these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. 
He explains that what they are seeing here, it's the pouring out of God's Spirit upon all men, which was what the prophet Joel said would happen. He wrote it down because God revealed it to him. And this is the fulfillment of that. And then he says in verse 22, jump down to verse 22, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, he names him. A man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. You knew that these signs could not be done by a mere man. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. He cites David's words in Psalm 16. He states how God will not allow His Holy One to undergo decay. And then in verse 32, this Jesus God raised up again. Then He brings in all the eleven, He says, to which we are all witnesses. He goes on to to declare in verse 33 that this risen Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of God. In verse 36, God has made this Jesus whom they had crucified and killed, both Lord and Christ. And as a result of hearing this preaching about a Savior who died and then God raised from the dead, just as the Scriptures said He would, verse 37, it says they were pierced to the heart. And they pleaded, what shall we do? Verse 38, Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. See, his death verified by his resurrection from the grave. It was accomplished. Why? To bring about your forgiveness, pardon from your sins. His death accomplished the work of salvation and his resurrection proved that pardon and forgiveness was now truly offered in His name. Jesus is just another religious figure. He's just another prophet. He's another zealot making promises He cannot keep without the resurrection. Without the resurrection, He's just like everyone else, every other person who has ever lived and died. His corpse is still in the grave somewhere, rotting. It's returned to dust. And so will everyone be who puts their hope in that Savior. But the resurrection changed everything. It changed everything. It proved He was the Son of God, sent by God, and that His death accomplished all that He said it would. He purchased a full pardon for your sins, having, been, having died in your place for your sins. This was what the resurrection proved. And this was why the resurrection was at the center of the gospel and why it was the focus of the apostles' preaching. And it was this gospel that Paul had preached to them and that they had believed. And the problem, as far as Paul knew it, was that they had failed to remember this. When he says here, in, back in the Corinthians 15, he says there in verse 1, he says, Now I make known to you 
brethren, the gospel which I preach to you. So he's not really making something new, known to them, because he points to what he preached, right? What he had delivered to them when he first came to them, past tense, right? So he's not saying, I'm giving you this news now. I preached it to you then, and you believed it. And so what Paul is saying here is that he's really, he's really reminding them of the gospel that, he, that they had already heard by his preaching and that they had believed. It's always been focused on the resurrection, but they just seem to have forgotten this. How is it that they can say there is no resurrection from the dead when the gospel that they heard and believed was focused on the resurrection of Christ from the dead? Christ's resurrection guarantees our resurrection, as he will go on to explain. You know, it's so easy for us as Christians to get caught up, distracted by all the other issues to get the main thing. Christ was raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of all those that who will be resurrected and given new, real bodies, fit for a new existence where we will experience real delights and it will never end. See, Christ purchased all of this when He purchased our pardon. And this is the gospel that was preached by Paul. It was preached by all the other apostles because it's the only true gospel. And it's at the heart. And at the heart of it is a resurrected Christ. And maybe you're hearing the gospel now for the very first time. There is a Savior who came. He died. He rose again so that you might receive forgiveness and eternal life. And His name is Jesus. And you can trust Him because He's the Son of God who was sent by God to rescue you, a sinner. To rescue you from death and condemnation. And you can receive Him today by faith. And that's what needs to happen if you want to know forgiveness for your sins and if you want to gain the gift of eternal life. And we'll begin looking at that when we return next week. Lord willing. Heavenly Father, what a glorious gospel. It's not a gospel that we must work hard, do our best, strive, strive, strive to get into heaven by our works. No, it's a gospel of a work that was done by a perfect Savior who loved us, took on all our sins, bore our shame, and finished the work. And that's what we put our faith in. That's who we put our faith in. This Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners. Oh, draw men this glorious person today. Draw sinners to Him to find forgiveness, to have their consciences cleansed, the burden lifted. Do this and glorify Yourself as the God of all compassion and grace. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.